All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. I, uh, it's not every Sunday I break out the old dinner jacket. Uh, I definitely appreciate the opportunity from Pastor Jim and the elders uh, giving me a little bit of rope. Uh, my hope is that at, at the end of the sermon, I haven't hung myself with it. Uh, before we get into the text today, I have a couple of random thoughts that I'd like to share with you guys. Um, back in my home country of Texas, I grew up in a really small town. And uh, I grew up in a church with about 100 or 120 people in it. And for a group of that size, we had a remarkable amount of really talented musicians. It was, it was really an embarrassment of riches whenever you would come, come to our church. My friend, um, my, my best friend, he could play the bass guitar, he could sing, and he could write music. His younger brother... Any instrument you put into his hands, he could pick it up and, and, and be familiar with it and play it at some point with some fair precision. My cousin Ben, he is one of the finest piano players you would ever have the privilege of listening to. In that 100 and 120 people, we had people that could play the violin. We had people that could play the saxophone, the electric guitar. People could sing. And then there was me, not a musical bone in my entire body. The main problem is, is that I can't sing on key. I just can't do it. I don't have an ear for it. And it's not for lack of trying. I have made some of the most godly of choir directors start breaking commandments when working with me. Growing up in that kind of church with so much wonderful music and musicians and the praise and worship being lush, it made me come to really love and appreciate preaching. It was the only thing I got to do. Over the years, a handful of people have asked me to preach for them, but never have I been asked to join a worship team. For my good and your good and the glory of God. Random thought number two. It's been about six or seven months since we joined the church, and I wanted to share a couple of insights on what Jennifer and I were thinking as we joined Trinity. Okay, and so I, I wanted to share. There was a number of reasons why we picked Trinity. Um, I won't be able to touch all of them, but one of the main ones was I was getting to know Jim fairly well. We were going out to lunch, talking on the phone, getting to know each other, and that was a big part of it. We would come and we would visit, and the Word of God was preached. We would open the Bible. At that time, it was Luke. And we would go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Word of God. And it was such a blessing to be able to sit under that preaching as we really dive deep into what God's Word had to say. I loved it. Another thing that I really loved was the weekly communion. I think it's a blessing to be able to come in here week in and week out and not only hear the gospel being preached, but see the gospel as well. The last thing that I want to talk about was the body, the people, you all. 
as a word of exhortation to you, I want to say that when we came, we were welcomed. We were hugged. Hands were shaken. It was such a comfortable body to come and be a part of. And I am so grateful that you guys were loving and kind. You guys engaged with me and my family, my children. And it was really touching to feel like we were your brothers and sisters in the Lord. It felt comfortable. It felt like we were family. As many of you know, two months ago, our life changed in a pretty big way. My wife's mother passed away very suddenly, very tragically. Um, She was 62. And we were shocked by this. And I have to say, from the bottom of my heart, thank you to the body and the people of God. You were so sweet to us. You were so kind to come and deliver food. I think we still have some muffins somewhere, I believe. You guys dropped off paper goods, gave activities to my kids so that they could have something to do as a healthy distraction. You guys were loving and praying for us, and I deeply appreciate all that you guys did for us. Some of you even went so far as to come to the funeral of a woman you had never met because your brother and sister in the Lord were, were hurting. And so again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for that. For the past two months, I've been thinking a lot, almost nonstop, about suffering and loss. And when Jim asked me to preach, I thought, rather than fighting it, I figured I'd lean into the topic and discuss with you all insights into suffering. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about suffering, about pain, and about loss. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible that's handed over to this very topic. The reason the Bible has so much to say about it is because it is such an accurate representation of what life is really like. Life is pain. And life is loss. In the words of Don Carson, the only way to get around suffering is to not live long enough. And if that's the case, you will inevitably cause suffering for someone else. When we think of all the biblical figures that are marked by suffering, there are several that come to mind. My particular favorite is Joseph. Do me a favor and go into your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. It's a poor storyteller who goes to the end of the book first, but here we are. I apologize. Let's go to Genesis chapter 50. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 26, but we're really going to set up camp in verses 15 through 21. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now 
Please forgive the transgressions of your servants, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came. They fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. The last word in the book of Genesis is Egypt, which is the exact place that Exodus picks up. That's the setting for the very next book. And so it's healthy and it's a good thing to think about the context of how, we, how God's people got to Egypt. How did they end up there in the first place? And in the context of our text today, it's also helpful to ask the question, why are Joseph's brothers so afraid? So in order to tell that story, we need to back up. It does begin with Joseph, and it begins in the land of Canaan. Joseph was born to Jacob and Rachel. Now, it ought to be said that Rachel herself, year after year, suffered from barrenness. Okay? But finally, after years of prayer, the Lord opened the womb of Jacob's favorite wife, And she produced a boy who quickly became Jacob's favorite son. Now, better preachers than me would not go to the obvious. But I'm not that good, so I will. It's not that big of a deal to have a favorite wife if you only have one wife to begin with. And furthermore, it's not that big of a deal to have a favorite son if you only have one son to begin with. Jacob is not in this category. He has 11 sons. And they know that Joseph is the favorite. And they hate him for it. To make matters worse, Joseph is uniquely gifted. He has been given the ability to have prophetic dreams and understand those dreams even when they're at the most complicated. Joseph has one particular dream where he has his brothers, he sees his brothers bowing down to him in humble submission. Now, Joseph is no dummy. He doesn't breathe a word of this to anybody. Instead, what he does is he writes it down in his dream journal and he tucks it underway under a sleeping mat. Not necessarily. In his arrogance and in his pride, he tells his brothers all about 
what God has in store for him and what God has in store for them. And when the opportunity presented itself, they seized him. They threw him in a pit. They had a heart-to-heart conversation with one another about flat-out killing them. At the end of the day, thank God, cooler heads prevailed and they decided, let's just sell them into slavery. And this is the beginning of a blessed life marked by suffering. The story picks up in Genesis 39. Joseph is taken all the way down to Egypt where he is sold into slavery. But he's not just sold to anybody. He sold to Potiphar, one of the wealthiest, most influential and powerful men in all of Egypt. He's with Potiphar for 10 years, and Potiphar soon realizes that Joseph is no ordinary slave. He's gifted. He's smart. He's talented. Everything he touches is successful. Everything he does, it it, it seems like it's blessed by God. And so Potiphar decides, Let me give him more things to touch so that I can benefit from this. I have a cash cow. I might as well milk it. After 10 years of service to Potiphar, Joseph is then falsely accused of adultery by Potiphar's wife, and he is thrown in prison. Although innocent, he's cast into prison, but not just any prison. Scripture says it was the king's prison. And that's pretty important because in the king's prison, you get some pretty important cellmates, to which he receives two. He accurately interprets both of their dreams, and his one request is to not be forgotten. Spoiler alert, he is immediately forgotten. He is in slavery and in prison for a grand total of 13 years until he finally receives some relief. Pharaoh becomes plagued by dreams. A complicated dream, and Joseph is the only one that can interpret it. And he doesn't just interpret it, but he advises what he should do in light of this information from God. Pharaoh is so pleased that he gives him the signet ring of Pharaoh and makes him second in all of Egypt. Don't call it a comeback, but that's pretty impressive. After 20 years of being away from his family, the famine has spread all the way to Canaan. And Joseph's brothers come to Egypt in search for food. And old wounds are reopened. Genesis 42 shows the brothers bowing down before Joseph in fulfillment of his vision and his dream. Joseph treats his brothers harshly, though, and he accuses them of being spies in the land of Egypt, and he throws them in custody. And while in custody, he learns that he has another brother, Benjamin. And so he plots a scheme. He's going to keep Simeon in prison, but release the other brothers. But they have to bring Benjamin back in order to get Simeon returned. When they do this, Joseph throws a feast for them. But he has a test up his sleeve. He's going to frame Benjamin for a crime that he did not commit to see if his brothers have really changed. And in chapter 44, we see a beautiful Christological moment where Judah becomes the substitutionary atonement for his brother Benjamin. 
Look with me at Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve life for you, a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So this was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. In 20 years of Joseph's suffering, we see him develop a doctrine of suffering that he carries with him. Joseph came to believe that his suffering and his tragedies and his pain was not disconnected or separated from the sovereign control of God. In fact, when we look at the story from beginning to end with Joseph, we see God's sovereignty saturating this story. It, it, it needs to be said that he had a gift of interpreting dreams, something that God sovereignly gives him. He wasn't just sold into any slave's house. He was sold to Potiphar. And he wasn't just put into any prison. It was the king's prison. We see the Lord sovereignly working and orchestrating all of these events in Joseph's life. So what insights are we to take away from this to aid us during our time of crisis? Let's look at verse 15 of chapter 50 again. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. The brothers do not anticipate Joseph's forgiveness. They are under the assumption that the only thing that was staying Joseph's anger was Jacob. And they failed to see that Joseph's faith in God is what was truly restraining or preventing him from revenge or retaliation. And as a result, they feared. They feared, and in their fear, they sinned yet again against their brother. They concocted this elaborate lie. They used the death of their father to manipulate and guilt trip Joseph. They were so afraid of Joseph, in fact, that rather than going and saying this face to face with him, they decide to send a message. They won't even go to him in person. Now, this is not a great idea. Here's a guy that can interpret the most complicated of dreams, and you think you're going to trick him with some, some letter, some message? Joseph sees right through it. He sees right through it, and this is painful for him. So painful that it brings him to tears. But he's not angry. And the only reason he is not angry is because he has this doctrine. This doctrine of suffering. 
He learned many years ago to put his faith in God, to trust in the Lord, to believe in God and in his sovereign will. Now, what's very important is to know what I mean when I say he had faith in God. Faith in God is not believing that God is going to work everything out the way you want him to. That's not the definition. In fact, that's actually more faith in yourself. That's faith in your plans. That's faith in your belief that you know what is best for you. That's faith in you, not faith in God. Rather, faith in God is believing that God knows what is best and that he will do what is good, what is right, what is just, even if it's painful. Which brings us to Derek. When Jennifer and I were first married, we were part of a small little church plant in Dallas-Fort Worth. We had 20 or 30 people in the church, and the members of the body had two things in common. We were very young. The median age was probably 23. 24 if you aggressively round up. We were very young. We were very poor. And these two winning combinations, you would be a fool not to plant a church. And so we did. (laughs) We didn't have enough money and we weren't raking in enough to pay for a building. And so what we did is we met in people's homes. We would meet in living rooms and the such. And when you do something like that, you become a very close, tight-knit group. You even become pretty close with people who can we say, aren't your favorite? Derek was kind of a squirrely guy. He wanted to know what things annoyed you and bothered you so that he could exploit it. And he did it in love as a brother in Christ, but he wanted to know what buttons you didn't like push so that he could push them constantly. This is who he was. He loved doing it. Well, when you get used to it and you don't take it so personally, you came to kind of like the guy. He had a way of worming his way into your heart. And he did. He became a dear brother and a good friend. He eventually somehow wormed his way into the heart of a young lady, Melissa. Now, if there's any cessationists in the room, let me tell you, it is a full-blown Vatican-approved miracle that Derek got married. But he did. It was February 2012, and we were all gathered around in our pastor's living room watching the Super Bowl. Everybody was there, except for Derek and Melissa. They had just had their first child. And like good Calvinists, his name was Augustine. It's about the third quarter. Our pastor's wife comes storming in and turns the TV off. I mentioned that this is in Texas. She just committed two sins and a handful of crimes. You don't do that. It's the Super Bowl. Something was going on with Augustine. He was two days old and he had to be rushed to the hospital. We gathered around and we prayed and we decided rather than just praying, let's get in the cars and go to the hospital. And so our entire church loaded up and we went and we sat in the waiting room. We prayed We waited. We were there just to be supportive. 
We were there in case he needed any, in case he needed anything. And it was a very serious situation. Derek would come out every single hour and he would give us an update. Structurally, there was something wrong with Augustine's heart and it was not pumping enough blood to the rest of his organs throughout his body. And it was terribly serious. We were all very terrified. It's the worst that you can possibly imagine as a parent. And we were very concerned, and doctor, the doctors were very concerned, that he wouldn't even make it through the night. He was two days old. Derek would give us an update every hour. But he would also do this. He would lead us in prayer. And it went something like this. Lord, we love you. We worship you. You are good. You are right and just. And I ask that you save my little boy. I ask that you touch his heart and make it well. I ask that you touch his body and make it function the way it's supposed to. I ask, Lord, that you bless the doctors, give them wisdom, give them insight, skill of hand and knowledge into this situation. And, Lord, we just ask that Augustine can pull through and make it and that I get to take my boy home. But, Lord, if you choose not to, we will trust in you. We will worship you. We will follow you. If two days is all I get, Lord, we will honor you. He did this every hour. And he led us in that prayer. And here we have this squirrely guy being a giant in the faith. And he is leading us down this road marked with suffering. We'll come back to that. Verse 19 and 20. In verses 19 and 20, rather than bringing down judgment on his brothers, Joseph comforts them instead. And he is only able to comfort them for several reasons. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph is able to comfort his brothers because he understands that he is not God and that revenge is not his role. In response to his brother's fear, he comforts them because he is not in God's place when it comes to matters of revenge and retribution. He is, though, in a place of a Pharaoh-given role where he could do such a thing. He, he has the signet ring of Pharaoh. He could probably slaughter everyone, no questions asked. He's kind of a big deal when it comes to Egypt, but in the eyes of God, he's not. And he cannot take over a role that's uniquely reserved for God and God alone. This reminds me a lot of King David. In 1 Samuel 24, we see David is in suffering. He's being pursued by King Saul and he is and, and King Saul is hot on his heels and he gets um, hot on his heels and he gets a uh, he gets a tip of where King David and his men are hiding. And so he takes a, a handful of guys, a mere three thousand to go in this 
whole event. And he goes looking for David. He takes a bit of a pit stop and he goes into a cave. And unbeknownst to him, David and his men are in this very cave. And Saul has no idea how close to death he is. In fact, he's so close to death that David's men are inciting him to do it. He's saying, kill him. Put him to death. Let us end this thing. Let us go home. End it now. God has given it into your hands. And David will not do it. Like Joseph, David had a healthy understanding of who God is. And who he is underneath him. The second reason that Joseph chooses to comfort his brothers is that Joseph believes that all the evil brought upon him was intended or meant by God. Joseph believed that God had a sovereign control over his situation and suffering. Joseph believed that he was that God was fully in control, that he had planned it, he had determined it, and that he willed it to occur. And as a result of believing that God was sovereign over his pain, he was able to suffer well. And that is my hope for people in here today, is that we learn to suffer well. And in order to do that, we must believe that God never ceases to be in control. I mentioned this earlier, but there's an entire book of the Bible that's given over to this topic of suffering and pain. It's the book of Job. Job chapter 1. I'll turn there. You guys can just listen. It's important to remember what happens to Job. The day starts off with him being robbed by a bunch of Sabians that come down and take all of his oxen and donkeys. 500 of them each. And they kill all of his servants. But one. Later in the day, fire from God comes down from heaven and burns up all of his sheep and kills all of his servants. But one. The next thing that happens is raiding Chaldeans come down and they steal all of his camels. They kill all of his servants, but one. The last thing to occur, a house collapses. And inside this house are all ten of Job's children. And in Job chapter 1, verse 20 through 22, he says, Then Job rose and tore his robes. He shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. And the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It was not wrong for God to give. And it was not wrong for God to take away. And so he worshipped him. Now this isn't the end. In the very next chapter, he's afflicted from head to toe with sores. Verse 9. 
Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. It's interesting. The question of God's sovereignty is never reconsidered for Job. It's never reconsidered. He believes in it fully, whether he has good and plenty or whether it's all taken away. It's never reconsidered for him. And he defends it for the rest of the book. Another 40-something chapters, he defends that God is all-powerful, almighty, and he has full control over everything. He believed that it was an irrevocable attribute of, the, of God, the almighty. And in Joseph's case, Joseph is able to cope with this suffering for all of these years because he believed that God is the one who brought it about. He believed that God was the one who was in control over it. Calvin puts it this way. Joseph was sent to Egypt by the counsel of God. And he was sold into slavery by the decree of heaven. So why was Joseph comforting his brothers at this time? Joseph had reverence for God. And he recognized that he was the creator. And Joseph, although big in Egypt, is merely his creation. And God can do as God pleases. The question is not, will you suffer? The question is not, will you suffer and God remain sovereign? The question is, for what purpose will you suffer? Now, I will freely admit, this is difficult. You might never get an answer to that very question. It might not, might not ever happen. It never happened for Job. He certainly sought an answer, and he never got it. He got a list of rhetorical questions in a sense that God can do what God chooses, and he is good, and he is right, and he is just. However, in verse 20, Joseph does get an answer as to the purpose for his suffering. Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The third reason why Joseph is able to comfort his brothers is because Joseph believes that God intended the evil for good purposes so that others might be saved. We just got done reading in Genesis 45 that God, he comforts his brothers and he makes his big reveal and he says, don't be angry with yourselves. God is the one who sent me here so that I may preserve life. That very phrase, so that God may preserve life. That very phrase is a beautiful foreshadow of our Lord and Savior. God sent Joseph to Egypt so that God's people might be saved. 
And God sent Jesus to earth so that God's people would be saved. And how did he do this? How did Jesus accomplish this? Through suffering. Our Lord and Savior suffered. Will we not? Our Lord and Savior suffered under God's sovereign plan. Will we not as well? The most evil and the most heinous and wicked thing that has ever happened on this earth was the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ. And it all else pales in comparison. And so what do we know about this? We know that it was determined by God. Peter says this much during his message at Pentecost. He uses the words, the definite plan of God. And it was. We also know that it had a purpose. And it was to pay the penalty for the sins of God's people. The greatest good that you can't even begin to imagine was purposed for Christ in his suffering. Hear me. In your life, you will experience great loss and deep pain. And there will be days when your suffering feels as if it is unbearable. And it will do you no good to believe that God is uninvolved, unaware, or incapable. What will do you good is the Word of God, the truths of Scripture, a biblical doctrine of suffering. What will do you good is having faith in God that He knows what is best for you and me. Back to Derek. Days became weeks. And weeks became months. Augustine was eventually transported to a different hospital. And it became apparent that he had to have heart surgery. The only problem was is that he was way too weak and his body was not working the way it should to survive the surgery. But his heart wasn't working enough to make his body well. It was a terrible situation. And I saw my brother Derek go through some of the most agonizing pain. Because things were so, so serious, they, the doctors couldn't risk Augustine getting any kind of sickness, any kind of cold, any kind of anything. And so Derek and Melissa didn't get to touch him for a long time. They didn't even get to touch their own boy. Finally, doctors allow it to happen. They allow Melissa to touch Augustine. And the most amazing thing happened. He pooped. He pooped. I'm not trying to be crass. You have to understand, this was a big deal for the doctors. Nothing at this point had been working right. And now something all of a sudden does. 
They took it as a great sign. They took it as a lot of encouragement. And slowly but surely, it might have been just the touch of a mother to do it. He began to get a little stronger. Other things began to work the right way. He started getting better and he started to improve. He got so strong, in fact, that doctors cleared him for surgery. And he went in, he got his surgery, and it went off without a hitch. And after six long months of Derek and Melissa living in the hospital, they finally got to take their boy home for the glory of God. And we hear stories like that, and we see stories like that, and we see the good that that comes about it, and we're so quick to give God the glory, and we're so quick to say, yes, don't you see, brothers and sisters, God is in control. We're so quick to do that when the news is good, but we're slow to do it when the news is bad. After six months of being in the hospital, Derek had to finally go back to work. And on his first week back, he got into a car accident and he was killed. And our church body was broken. We had to plan a funeral. Think of the agony of Melissa. She just survived this huge ordeal with her boy. And now she has something else to go through. At Derek's funeral, his good friend and the elder of our church prayed. And that prayer sounded very familiar. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We will follow you. We don't understand why things happen the way they happen. But we trust you. We believe in you. We have faith that you know what is best for us. And we will honor you. Folks, those kinds of prayers make God look beautiful. When you can say in your deepest possible pain, when you can say when it feels unbearable, when you can look up and confess that God is good enough, Yes, my child might be gone, or like Melissa, my husband might be gone, my friend, my mother might be gone. I might lose everything that I hold dear. I might lose everything that I care about. But I can never lose Christ. That makes God look beautiful. Folks, it's the same God that healed and touched Augustine's body is the same one who took Derek. And he was perfectly right and just to do so. And we should worship him in the good and in the bad. Because he deserves it. It makes God look truly beautiful when you suffer and when you suffer well and when you suffer with a purpose to glorify God. And that is our role in suffering. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do love you, and we do worship you. 
Lord, we thank you that the word of God is not silent on those inevitable. And we thank you that there is so much comfort in your word, in the work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that we have so many giants in the faith to look to on how they did their pain and how they went through their suffering, Lord. Most of all, I thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, if ever in our suffering, if ever we doubt your love and your care and your your love for us, let us look to the cross. Let us look to what Jesus Christ did out of love. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today. I pray that you teach us how to suffer well. I pray that you teach us how to suffer in a way that makes you look beautiful and glorified. In your name we pray.